The retirement and IRA show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier and Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. This is the Retirement and IRA Show coming to you from beautiful northern Colorado. Join us as certified financial planner Jim Saunier, as well as Colorado State University finance instructor and certified financial planner Chris Stein, teach you about IRAs, 401ks, annuities, social security, pension plans, and estate planning in a fun and enjoyable show. Whether you are listening live in Colorado or streaming from their website or iTunes podcast, Jim and Chris want you to know that they're available to help you plan for your retirement. Just visit their website at jimhelps.com. That's jim, H-E-L-P-S dot com. And click the Meet the Team button on the homepage. Now here's Jim and Chris with today's show. Welcome to the Retirement and IRA Show EDU edition for this week. Um, It's just going to be me flying solo today. This is Chris. Uh, Jim is traveling today. So um, as promised in a previous show, I mentioned that uh, when he was gone here, I was going to do maybe a deeper dive into a social security topic. And as it turns out, we've received a couple of recent emails with some uh, two very different topics that are both worthy of a little deeper dive. So we're going to kind of do, I guess, uh, uh, a two-question EDU show um, uh, on Social Security. But I think both of these are um, you know, interesting aspects of Social Security to consider and confusing parts of Social Security that maybe even controversial parts. I'll put it out there as well on the second question. You'll see what I mean in a little bit here. Um, but both of these, I think, were perfect to bring to the show today. So so we'll tackle it that way. So these come as, I guess, suggestions or, or questions from listeners. Um, and so we'll, we'll dive in since it's a little bit hard to do bantering with just one person. So um, this question, this first one comes in from a listener from uh, California. Uh, she's referencing our April 21st show. Um, where Jim mentioned that Chris would be doing a solo EDU show. And um, she said, may I ask about a little known to me option to quote, pause social security after you've already started receiving benefits. Here's my scenario. She says, I retired at age 60, have some rental income plus considerable funds in my IRA account. I was advised by a financial planner to start taking my social security at age 64 because otherwise and in parentheses, as the planner phrased it, I'd be, quote, leaving money on the table. I'd already planned on starting Social Security at age 64, so this was just additional encouragement to do so. Let me pause for just a moment, and unless the financial advisor or planner had some surety that you'd be passing away by the time you were in your early to mid-80s at the very latest, 
the leaving money on the table comment was probably completely inappropriate. <laughs> so um, uh, I, I suspect they don't know when you're going to pass away. Um, but uh, anyway, that's not really the, the, uh, the crux of her question here. So continuing on. At the same time, however, I'd been and am still making significant annual IRA to Roth conversions. I quickly realized that the additional 25000 or so in Social Security benefits was limiting the amount I could convert without going over my desired maximum tax bracket, not to mention pushing me into higher Medicare IRMA levels, IRMA being the inflation, the sorry, the income-related monthly adjustment amount, um, the Medicare premium surcharges, sometimes we call them. If your income or AGI is too high, they will charge you more for your Medicare. She says, now, while still age 65, I heard about an option to, quote, pause my Social Security benefits when I reached my full retirement age, which is 66 and four months, in August of 22. I did indeed pause my Social Security at that time, and I've used funds from my retirement and savings accounts to supplement my income these past eight months. I'd initially thought to restart my Social Security benefits after one year, but now I'm thinking about extending the pause of benefits. My questions are... Is there a limit to how long I can pause the benefits? If I decide to restart receiving benefits in, say, July of 2023, will I be able to pause them again? Uh, then she goes on. I'm going to leave this last part out because she goes on and talks about pausing and unpausing so that she can uh, only be receiving Social Security benefits for six months at a time in any tax year. Um, that one is a strategy I've not really seen much success with. I'll point that out. Uh, and I think it's more important to kind of uh, address what she's brought up so far. I think this could apply to a lot of people. This is something most people aren't aware is a possibility or what the benefits to pulling off the strategy that she's doing here might be to them. So let me first say, once you've started Social Security benefits, there's a couple of ways that you can stop them. You can first withdraw your application for benefits. That's not what she's talking about, but a lot of people confuse the two. So let me tell you about that one first. Withdrawing your application for benefits is a right you have once in a lifetime, as long as you do it within one year of initially filing for Social Security, they let you essentially push the reset button. Maybe you filed and you start collecting and then realize you wish you hadn't done that for a variety of reasons. You wish you had waited later or, or claimed differently. Maybe you didn't realize you could claim a survivor benefit on your deceased spouse before claiming your own uh, or, you know, whatever the reason you regret the decision, you'd like to undo it. They allow you to do that within 12 months of originally filing. Once in your life, you get to do this. They don't let you do it more than once. Once in your life, and if you do it, you must repay all benefits that had been paid to you and anyone else claiming on your record, see if you have a spouse or kids claiming on your record, all those benefits must be repaid for the withdrawal to be complete. Once it's complete, it's as if you had never filed in the first place and you now have available to you everything that would be normally available to you to a person who had not been, who had not filed yet. That's a withdrawal. The pause which is what she's talking about, is officially called suspending your benefits. And it is literally, like I like her use of the word pause, because it's like pressing the pause button on your benefits. You're not, 
you're not withdrawing the application. You're not really stopping them. You're just hitting pause and telling Social Security to hold on to your benefits until you unpause. Um, the right to do this came out in, uh, was essentially a result of the Senior Citizens Freedom to Work Act of 2000. So at that time, the couple significant things happened uh, to help seniors who are wanting to continue to work while receiving Social Security benefits. And one is they removed the earnings test that limits your Social Security benefits if you make too much money. Now we know the current rule, which has been in effect since 2000, that if you uh, earn, you can earn as much as you want after you reach your full retirement age. Uh, but before that, the earnings test still applies. Before 2000, the earnings test applied at any age. So this allowed seniors, once reaching their full retirement age, to go back to work to supplement their income and not have a penalty, if you will, or a reduction of their Social Security benefits. That was in there. And they also allowed you to suspend and collect delayed retirement credits. So most of you will likely know that if you delay collecting your Social Security past your full retirement age, you earn delayed retirement credits. In other words, in exchange for you delaying claiming, they will pay you a higher monthly benefit once you do turn on your benefit to the um, extent that you can earn two-thirds of 1% increase on your benefit for each month that you delay past your full retirement age. This is where that 8% per year figure comes that most people talk about. I like to quote it most of the time in a monthly figure because it actually applies monthly. They calculate these credits on a monthly basis. Up until age 70, and then they stop. Well, if you had filed earlier, uh, after 2000 now, when you suspended your benefit, which you were then allowed to do after your full retirement age, you could suspend and then start earning delayed retirement credits. Even if you had claimed earlier, like at age 62 or something, you still had to wait till you got to your full retirement age, but at that point you could push pause and then earn those delayed retirement credits and then unpause later, as late as age 70, and receive the delayed retirement credits during the pause, during the suspension. Those things were allowed starting in 2000 uh, due to the Senior Citizens Freedom to Work Act. That's where that showed up. So um, a few interesting strategies kind of came out from that and in the couple decades between that and well it wasn't two decades quite yet in the 15 years between that and the bipartisan budget act of 2015 which is when they changed some social security rules again people were um, filing and then suspending and they would um, um, suspend but still allow their spouse to continue collect a spousal benefit on their record. That was the old file and suspend strategy. Uh, you could suspend between full retirement age and age 70, and you could, instead of receiving the delayed retirement credits, you could say, no, don't give me the delayed retirement credits. Give me all of the past monthly payments that I didn't collect in a lump sum uh, and pay me as if I had filed at my full retirement age. Um, so kind of a bunch of these interesting strategies kind of started to pop up and people were using them. Not a lot of people, very few people, but it became, got, caught the attention of Congress and Congress put the kibosh on some of these things in the 2015 Bipartisan Budget Act 
they killed a couple things. One, they killed filing a restricted application, which means claiming one benefit and leaving another one unclaimed so that you could take advantage of kind of double dipping almost where you claimed one and then switched to another. Um, They eliminated that, although that elimination doesn't apply to the strategy we still have today where you could claim a survivor and then switch to your own or vice versa. It was really about the claiming a spousal and then switching to your own. That's gone unless you were grandfathered in being born before January 2nd of 1954. And they tweaked the suspension rules where now if you suspend your benefits, which you are still allowed to do, a lot of people think that's gone, but suspension or pause like she's talking about still exists today. But when you press pause or suspend your benefit, it also will stop any benefits that were going to auxiliary beneficiaries like your spouse or kids. That wasn't the case before 2015. Um, before 2015, you could pause your own and your spouse and kids could still be collecting theirs and you could be, you know, getting your delayed retirement credits. This was the file and suspend to open the door to spousal benefits there that people did a lot, uh, for a while, but that's, that's been, that door has been shut. And then they also killed, or at least tried to kill the collecting in a big lump sum all of your suspended payments if you chose to do that instead of receiving the delayed retirement credits. But there's a little, the the wording that they used to kill that in the bill was not very precise. So there's some legal arguments that maybe they didn't really kill that, but I haven't heard anybody successfully pull that off. So I'm going to consider claiming a big lump sum of suspended benefits dead and gone until someone you know, gives me, shows me proof that they were able to successfully do it. So that's kind of the evolution of this suspension thing. The, you, you didn't always have the right to do it, but after 2000, they, they granted that right to suspend, and then they kind of adjusted it a little bit. They adjusted the rules surrounding suspension in the 2015 Bipartisan Budget Act. So to go back to her questions. The the key rule here is you do in fact have to reach your full retirement age before you can suspend. Cannot suspend earlier. You can't spend it, suspend at 62, 63, 64, etc. So what she said she had to wait till her full retirement age is exactly correct. Then she pushes pause or suspends and she says, is there a limit to how long I can pause the benefits? Technically no, but there'd be no reason to pause beyond 70 because the the awarding to you of delayed retirement credits ceases at 70. So if you pause past 70, you are literally leaving money on the table because you're not getting any benefit in return for being suspended. And in fact, by default, the Social Security Administration, for those who suspend, is supposed to turn their benefit back on at 70 automatically for this very reason. No one would ever suspend past 70 because there's literally no benefit to doing so. It's leaving money on the table. So I have heard cases where some of those things that should work automatically with Social Security don't always. So I wouldn't necessarily rely on that to happen. I would, if you wanted to start back at 70, which is, again, no reason to wait beyond that, 
um, make sure they do that. <laughs> Reach out to them and make sure that that's going to happen and don't just assume it's going to happen and then maybe forget about it and months or years later you realize, uh-oh, I you know forgot to turn my benefits back on or something like that. So so that's, I guess, technically the limits that were the, as far as you'd want to be suspended just to 70. Then she says, if I decide to restart receiving benefits, will I be able to pause them again? Yes, I, I'm not sure you'd be you know, the, the best friends of the people at Social Security if you processed paperwork to, can, you know, pause, unpause, you know, or I'll use their word, suspend and then unsuspend and then suspend again and then unsuspend and kind of be doing that regularly. Uh, plus, you have to think, remember the bureaucracy of Social Security. Um, it's not like you're literally pushing a button and it's that instantaneous they don't always process the paperwork in a timely manner and this works as smoothly as it should. So um, I think she was asking that second question because of this idea she, that I didn't read through where she was maybe going to pause and unpause so that she could uh, collect 12 months of benefits at a time, but straddled between two tax years. Um, I I think that's a little fancy and, and, and uh, complicated, and I'd have to see the exact reasons why that might make sense. I've I've not seen anyone doing that strategy, so I don't think the benefits are obvious uh, for doing that. But but technically, you can pause slash suspend, unsuspend, and then resuspend again. Um, that is allowed. There's no technical limit I've ever read on on doing that. Um, the only re- you know restriction is you got to wait till your full retirement age. And then um, uh, you wouldn't remain suspended past 70 for the reasons that I previously outlined. So be aware of that the, the cases where people oftentimes do this is they maybe claimed it. Um, a lot of people claim at 62, they get either advice or get it in their head that, oh, it's the moment I'm eligible for Social Security, I'm going to claim it. And uh, so a lot, tons of people do that. The statistics show that of people who do that, a full 30% regret that decision. So later on, they discover that they would have preferred to have a larger monthly benefit. And had, to, had they to do it over again, they would have waited past 62, a full, basically a third of people who do that. That means two thirds, I guess, are happy, <laughs> you know, don't regret their decision to claim at 62. But um, don't do it unless you have a specific reason to do it. I, I don't, I, social security is such a valuable part to most people's retirement situation. When you look at that lifetime stream of payments that's coming to you, people underestimate the value of that. It is easily for most people worth a million dollars plus if they have an average or above average size social security benefit. So be careful with that decision. It's it's like deciding what you're going to do with a million dollar piece of your portfolio. You shouldn't take you shouldn't make that decision lightly. You should really research it and and decide what what's going to work best in your overall situation. But let's say you did claim at 62 and you regretted the decision but you didn't realize it until after it was too late to withdraw your application because if if you regret it early on you could withdraw, and then then the you know the world is your oyster. You can you can do everything you could have done had you not claimed. If you do a full withdrawal, other than have to pay the money back, right? And that for some people they they can't easily do that. But I would say if you're thinking of redoing your strategy and you wished you would have waited, you must have other resources, so you probably could pay the 
the benefits back. So always keep in mind the withdrawal is uh, an opportunity. But once you go past that, now you're stuck. You're, you're kind of collecting a benefit. You can't stop it. Um, one way you can kind of stop it so that you can remove the the harm of claiming it early and receiving that you know twenty five to thirty percent reduction in your monthly benefit that happens when you claim at sixty two and the reason for the range is that it depends on whether your full retirement age is sixty six or sixty seven or somewhere in between. Um, one hack just to point it out since I'm kind of, I'm just kind of rambling on here about about things that affect people in this circumstance, they could. Uh, go back to work and make enough to have the earnings test eliminate their benefit, their social security benefit. What does that do? Well, that actually pauses your benefit in effect. It essentially kind of artificially suspends your benefit. They stop it. And then at full retirement age, they will recalculate your benefit as if you hadn't claimed during that period. So you can kind of undo the early claiming that way. So if you're interested in going back to work and making enough to suppress your social security payments via the earnings test, that is a way to kind of simulate a suspension before full retirement age. So I'll throw that one out there. Now, not everyone's interested in doing that, right? So they might just have to hold, you know, bide their time until they get to their full retirement age, but then suspend like this person did. This this uh, woman decided to suspend and wait, and I don't know if she's going to wait to 70. She sounded like she was going to wait for a year, but then was contemplating going beyond. But you could at least get the delayed retirement credits. So so let's do a little you know, rough math here. Let's say your full retirement age was 67, but you claimed at 62. That permanently reduced your monthly benefit by 30% by doing that. But what if when you got to your full retirement age you then suspended to 70. Well, if you suspend that three years from 67 to 70, you're going to earn a 24% increase in your benefit. So that kind of offsets the early claiming effect that you had before. Not fully. You're going to gain 24 when you gave up 30. So, But it will reduce the reduction effect of you claiming prior to your full retirement age. And some people decide they they want that. They want the longevity protection, the little bigger, you know, especially an inflation-adjusted cash flow coming into retirement is quite valuable. And they decide they'd like it to be bigger. They'd like it to be 24% bigger than it is, you know, on the day they were full retirement age. And suspending is one way to do that. And then you just live on on other resources during that three years. And uh, when you look at the trade-off, I'm not going to go too deep down this rabbit hole or this whole show will be this one email, but the calculations still show that the value or the increase in those benefits, those monthly lifelong benefits uh, in exchange for the dollars that you give up during that three years is still a better deal than acquiring guaranteed lifetime income from other sources. That essentially means some type of private annuity. That's really the only other source for guaranteed income. If you don't have a pension and you don't have social security, you want to buy more, you take a lump sum amount and you engage with an insurance company to get a guaranteed lifelong stream of income. When we look at the trade-off, you'll give more money to an insurance company 
to get an equal amount of increase in your secure income that you would get from Social Security by giving money to Social Security and by giving it by suspending your benefits or stopping them. That's like letting them keep that money. So you're kind of giving them the money in exchange for higher Social Security benefits when you unsuspend. Social Security is still the better deal. Um, so just kind of throwing that out there. I've, I've talked about that particular aspect of it in detail in previous shows. Might bring that up again if a bunch of people haven't heard that. But um, I'm just kind of throwing out some of the reasons why someone might suspend. Maybe their circumstances have really changed and they thought they'd like to be retired, but they realize they would like to work and maybe they want to work until their later 60s or 70s. And and they uh, have plenty of income doing that, even though they could collect Social Security simultaneously with work. They're like, no, I don't really need it right now. I'd rather have the bigger Social Security benefit when I really do finally fully retire. Uh, so I'd like to suspend it while I'm working. Uh, or it could be like what this this person, when they wrote in, they referred to doing Roth conversions, doing some tax strategies and some tax manipulation work, and not having that Social Security income coming in on their tax return helped them with the strategy they were pulling off. It's not, you know, it doesn't mean it's good for everybody, but that's a, another reason to consider uh, suspending benefits once you've started them. So, um I think this covers everything this person was curious about, and hopefully I educated you a bit on this, you know, both withdrawing an application and suspending and why you might do it and what the effects are when you actually uh, pull it off. It's quite simple to do. You just notify Social Security and they do it. They, they do this all the time. So um, next email that came in also came in here here within the last week or so. So... Uh, um, he starts off bone to pick with Chris. <laughs> so, so he has an issue with something that I said. And specifically, I made a comment on Q&A show number 2315. So that was the 15th show uh, of um, 2023 here, which is just in the last couple of weeks that that happened. And he says, I completely disagree that WEP slash GPO is fairly applied to me based on what my wife and myself have paid into Social Security. And then he goes into some background. So let me, let me preface this. As I read through this, keep in mind, um, a lot of what he's complaining about in fairness is really actually a complaint about how Social Security functions. When I say a comment like GPO, the government pension offset, which I will describe what that is here in a moment for those unfamiliar is actually quite fair. I'm saying that it's fair compared to a household where both spouses have Social Security. So a household that has a government pension that creates a GPO issue versus a household with just Social Security in it, the GPO folks actually are equal to or better off than the household with Social Security, which I'll describe in a minute why I say that. The WEP, I say there it's questionable how fair that is. So I'm I'm less adamant about the fairness of the windfall elimination provision. There's certainly pros and cons, and and you know looking at it, some people think it's it's totally fine. Others say it's it's patently unfair, and I get you know both sides of that argument. But GPO, 
I think is pretty cut and dried, and I'm going to show that. So when he, when I'm reading through his complaints, keep kind of listen for this. He's in a lot of cases he's actually complaining about just how Social Security works and is the Social Security system fair at face value. I was talking about the fairness of comparing Social Security situations to government pension situations. That comparison. And are those on kind of equal footings or is one an advantage over the other? I wasn't talking about the fairness of paying in, for instance, to Social Security for 35 years and then dying before you claim. And all that money's gone. Is that fair? I don't know. The system wasn't set up to benefit people in that case. The whole reason the benefits are as large as they are compared to the money that goes in is that the money from people that never claim any dollars helps go to the people who live to 105 or 110 years old and collect way, 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 way more than they ever put in. That's how the system is set up. Is that fair? I'm not, you know, that's not, that was not part of my argument about fairness or unfairness when I was talking before about GPO. So getting back, I just wanted to kind of lay that out there as you're you're listening through this. I think you'll pick up on exactly what I'm talking about here. So background, I'm uh, I'm subject to WEP GPO because I have a gross annual government pension of $105,000, and I did not contribute to Social Security with that employer. Two-thirds of my monthly gross pension is about $5,900, which completely eliminates any Social Security spousal or survivor benefit based on my wife's Social Security, and her expected benefit is about $3,200 at full retirement age and about $4,000 at age 70. I paid into Social Security for 22 years, and my Social Security benefit will be reduced by about $446 because of WEP, the windfall elimination provision, leaving me with about $400 gross benefit before taxes and future Medicare deductions. So I'm going to pause here before he gets into, gets into the rest of it so I can share with people just fairly quickly, as quickly as I can, what is this WEP and what is this GPO for people who might not have listened to previous shows where we went into that. So WEP, the Windfall Elimination Provision and the Government Pension Offset, or GPO, are provisions of Social Security that affect your Social Security when you also have a non-covered pension. Non-covered means not covered by Social Security, which means for most of the time it's going to be a government pension that was put in place as a replacement or alternative at that employer to the Social Security system. Instead of getting Social Security and maybe other benefits, you got this pension So they were opted out of Social Security, which they were certain employers are allowed to do. They're all government uh, employers. Um, And so when you have one of those and simultaneously have potential eligibility for Social Security, either on your own record or from a spouse, these provisions, the WEP and GPO, will affect that Social Security benefit possibly. Okay, so the WEP, let's start with that. The WEP affects your own potential Social Security benefit, which he is affected by because he's calling it out here. He did, in addition to working for the government, 
and getting this government pension built up to $105,000 a year, also participated in Social Security at at another job um, for 22 years, and uh, that reduces his potential retirement benefit uh, down to about four hundred. Now I'm I don't have all of his numbers to kind of verify these. These so his numbers don't quite make sense with the math, but let me share the the basic rule is your own benefit is based on what's called your PIA primary insurance amount. Your primary insurance amount is based upon your average indexed monthly earnings. They look back at your earnings over your life that where you participated in Social Security. And they pick out your 35 best years after they adjust your earnings in each year for inflation, average them together to get this thing called your average indexed monthly earnings. Then with that average indexed monthly earnings, they will calculate your actual benefit or PIA with a formula. And that formula is designed, and this is another place where maybe he feels it's unfair, uh, just the Social Security system itself. That formula says in 2023 for people turning 62, and I'm calling it out specifically because the numbers I'm using are the current year numbers. These numbers will change for each person depending on what year they turn 62. But for those turning 62 in 2023, the first $1,115 of your AMI, your average index monthly earnings, they're going to replace in the as a Social Security benefit at 90%. So let's pretend for a minute that you have a benefit. Your your average earnings over your 35 best years was only $1,100 a month. They're going to consider you, the reason why they're replacing it at 90% is people in that circumstance, that's a very low-wage person who's barely, you know, they're living poverty, basically. You know, $1,000 a month in the United States isn't going to go very far. And so they say to keep you, you know, as whole as possible, we're going to give you a Social Security benefit worth 90% of that $1,100 that you made on average over your lifetime. Then the next roughly $5,600 of your average earnings, they only replace at 32%. And then any average indexed monthly earnings over about $6,700 they replace it only 15%. So you can see that your benefit calculation is biased towards giving more percentage benefit to low-wage workers comparing, compared to high-wage. That's just how the system is built, flat out. Fairness or not, that's a question for Congress. They decided that's how it's going to work. They biased it towards low-wage workers replacing their average earnings at a much higher rate than a high wage earner, just the way it is. Where WEP comes in is they adjust that 90% payout on that first $1,100. They essentially say, and for him, this is about right, his average index monthly earnings has to be somewhere around 1000 bucks a month, which if you only have 22 years of maybe part-time work or something in there, your benefit's not going to be very big because you're going to have 13 years of zeros in your 35-year calculation. So his average is going to be pretty darn low. But was he a low-wage worker? No, he's got a $105,000 pension, so he was working at a you know high-paying job. He just wasn't participating in Social Security during that time. He was instead building up this big pension. So Social Security said, whoa, 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 this isn't fair. If you have both, 
we're not going to look at you in Social Security as a low-wage worker and pay you 90% of your average earnings when, in fact, you weren't a low-wage worker. So the WEP provision changes that 90%. It reduces it to 40%. Okay? Take essentially half of that. So half of that $1,100 first, what we call bend point in the calculation. That's what's affecting his benefit and reducing it like he described. Now, he said he had 22 years of benefits. You can become immune to the WEP offset if you have 30 years of substantial participation in Social Security. But he only had 22 years in there. So he, his, his WEP offset is reduced a little bit. But I don't want to get too into the weeds on the web beyond what I've described. I think I've captured what, what's going on here uh, for everybody in that the reason why his benefit is being reduced, as he's described it, you know, essentially cut in half or, or so from what he would have gotten otherwise, is because he's not getting benefit of looking like a low-wage worker. That's what WEP is meant to do. So that's the WEP. His comment about GPO, what's the GPO? The government pension offset is a provision that handles a non-covered pension recipient like him. It adjusts their potential spousal or survivor benefits on their spouse's record. So he has a spouse that participated in Social Security. And he's right. The reason why he mentioned that two-thirds of his government pension benefit is 5900 is because of the GPO rule. The GPO rule says if you are eligible to collect a survivor or spousal benefit, which are the benefits GPO affects, they're going to reduce your potential spousal or survivor benefit $2 for every $3 of your non-covered pension. So he's right. When his wife has a benefit, a Social Security benefit of $3,200, his potential spousal benefit would only be $1,600 on her record. So that means that two-thirds of his pension, which is 5900 that completely blows his spousal benefit out of the water. Reducing uh, 1600 by 5900 leaves you negative. They're not going to take money from you, but it completely eliminates a potential spousal and completely eliminates a potential survivor benefit. The survivor benefit he could collect would be his own wife's benefit, which he mentioned, even if she delays to 70, is only going to get to $4,000 a month. Two-thirds of his pension is still way bigger than that, completely eliminating any uh, spousal or survivor benefit he might collect. So that's how the GPO works. The WEP is much less punitive. The maximum offset for WEP right now is about $557. Uh, So it's limited in its impact. The GPO has no upper limit. It's two-thirds of your your non-covered pension. That's it. No matter how big it is, it's $2 for every $3 offset. So those are the basic rules. Let me now get into his complaint, and then I'll address it. Please have Chris explain how his answer from Q&A show 2315 is appropriate based on the scenario below. Thank you for your time and response, um, because many other government pension participants are experiencing this same injustice. So he describes a couple of a couple of couples. <laughs> okay, so the first couple is he and his wife. Wife paid into Social Security for more than thirty five years, and her benefit is thirty two hundred dollars at full retirement age and about four grand at seventy. 
Two-thirds of his pension eliminates any uh, survivor or spousal. And then he underlines in bold, I will receive nothing from Social Security because of WEP and GPO and no spousal benefit. That is absolutely true based on the rules. However, stopping right there, if you had Social Security in the amount that you're describing from your pension, you also would never receive a spousal benefit or survivor benefit on your wife's record. Period. Because in a household where you both have Social Security, which is what I was comparing his type of household to when I made the comment about GPO not really being unfair, is because of this. Social Security, you don't, when one of you passes away as a married couple, the survivor doesn't keep both Social Securities. They only keep the higher one. His, based on his work record, would have been higher than his wife's almost for sure. And the survivor would only keep one. So, and the $1,600 spousal benefit is way below what his Social Security, his own benefit would have been. So he never would have been able to get a Social Security spousal benefit from her record. And even if she predeceases him, his benefit's bigger and he would not get a survivor benefit. So they're on equal footing. But GPO actually opens the door to it being slightly better position. Let's change the numbers just a little bit and you'll get what I mean. Let's pretend that they both have Social Security at $3,200 a month. So they both have equal Social Securities, not one bigger than the other. Again, like I said, if one passes away, they only keep one. Since they're equal, they'd only keep the survivor, him in this case, would only keep the $3,200. But if his non-covered pension was $3,200 a month, two-thirds of $3,200 would offset her $3,200 survivor benefit, leaving him with over $1,000 from her record to add to his $3,200 pension. So people with a non-covered pension actually have the possibility of keeping all of their pension and adding a little bit of the survivor as it comes over. His numbers are big enough where none is going to come over, but that's because his pension is so huge. His pension is way bigger than any Social Security benefit ever could have gotten to. But if we make the numbers a little more Social Security-like, the government pension recipient actually has an advantage over a household where they both have Social Security. Because in Social Security, you're never going to get some of the other persons. You're only going to keep one. You're going to keep the highest. The other one disappears completely. So... That's the fairness comment that I was talking about with the GPO. Now, if he's complaining that someone can pay into Social Security for 35 years and then not get all their money out or a spouse not getting anything out of it, that's true. That happens. But that's how a collective kind of longevity risk pooled system works. People who live shorter or pull out less than they put in provide money to go for people who live longer and, you know, take more money out. It's kind of like a shared risk pool, almost kind of a situation. If you think about it, is that unfair? Well, if you think of social security as an, as an account that you put money into, and then it's there for you to take out, then yeah, it seems unfair that someone's, you know, taking your money out of there. 
but that's not how the system was ever designed or built or intended to be. Uh, that's that's uh, just the reality of the system. I wasn't commenting on again. I wasn't commenting on that when I said the fairness thing, but I think I've kind of proved my point with the GPO. GPO never puts you in a worse position than a couple where you both had Social Security, and it opens the door to maybe you being in a better position than a couple that both has Social Security, because the offset, that two thirds offset factor gives you a slight opportunity above and beyond someone who has social security instead. Um, The next comparison he makes is to his situation to a couple where only one spouse works. So he used an example, the husband paid into social security, earns a benefit. The wife never worked and never paid into social security, but can collect a spousal benefit. She never paid a dime in, but can collect. Well, that's absolutely true. That's the system. That's how the system was built, right? They decided that many years ago. The Social Security system didn't start out with spousal benefits or survivor benefits, but they added those later. And it was meant, uh, I think it was ultimately, you know, if you think about a single person, a single, and I'll use his 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 uh, spousal definitions here, the, the, the husband was the worker in this case, um, paid into Social Security. If he was um, solo, the $4,000 benefit that he quotes in here would all be his. Um, the spousal benefit, I think, was to recognize, gee, you've got a spouse. You've got two mouths to feed and everything. So um, you only were the only worker, which was fairly common decades ago. Uh, you know, it happens sometimes now, but less so. But was pretty common when they put this rule back into place. And... Um, uh, here's some extra money as a spousal benefit, and they constructed it so that all the math works out actuarially. But you're right. This this wife who never paid in is getting a benefit and then would be able to collect the entire survivor benefit if, his, if the husband passed away and she never paid in a dime. Criticism of that situation is just criticism of the Social Security system. Because if you compare it to having a pension, you can certainly leave a survivor benefit behind on a pension. Let's say you just had a pension, his government pension, not Social Security. He could choose a payment where money flowed to the spouse if he were to pass away. Now, not all government pensions offer a 100% survivorship for the spouse like Social Security would, but many, many, many do. And actually, the one he has, I have left it more anonymous because I didn't want to give enough detail for somebody to figure out who this person was. I know for a fact the government pension that he is participating in has the option of leaving 100% survivorship to the spouse. So you can kind of equalize it there. I don't, you know, I don't know how, quote, fair the concept of a spouse who never paid in to the social security system deserving to get a spousal benefit is all I know is it's been the system for a very, very, very long time. Uh, and, and that's not really a, a, a thing to point at in, in my opinion and say, well, social security, you know, it's unfair because they have this feature and my pension doesn't. You have a lot of factors. You have a lot of characteristics of your pension that are far more attractive than social securities. Now, uh, to point out a couple issues, I know the pension system that he's in right now, they've uh, reduced the cost of living adjustment potential on it. Uh, 
So it's not quite as attractive as the current cost of living adjustment that's on Social Security. But again, it's starting out way bigger than any Social Security benefit he ever could have possibly built in a job like that if he was participating in Social Security. The biggest age 70 benefit that I've seen come across my desk right now uh, recently, just recent, just just here recently, topped $5,000. That's the biggest possible one in the, in the year 2023 that I've seen. So it's somewhere right around there is the theoretical limit that will go up with inflation. But right now that's the limit. He's got a pension, $105,000 a year versus the most he could possibly have gotten from Social Security is 60. So he can criticize Social Security for having a few features that are, you know, in his eyes better than what his pension is, but his pension just flat out is way bigger than he could get from Social Security. So sometimes it's hard to do an apples to apples comparison. There's certainly things I'm I'm sure he wishes he had from Social Security in his pension, and there's a bunch of things from the pension that boy they would certainly make Social Security be better if that those features were were sucked over to the Social Security side. But I'll stand by my quote, my my statement, because I was really talking about GPO when I was talking about this fairness issue. GPO is, in fact, totally fair when you are talking about how fair it is compared to a household where both spouses have Social Security. The household where one has a government pension and one has Social Security has the potential of an advantage over the household where they're both social security, but in no case is there a disadvantage. It's, it's equal or better for a lot of people. It's only equal, but it's certainly not worse. It is certainly not worse. WEP, you know, that's a policy decision that they made on that. Whether that reduction, I I don't, it sounds to me like he's not as annoyed by WEP as the GPO situation. And it may or may not agree with me now that I've explained my point uh, and my uh, interpretation or my uh, judgment, I guess, of GPO. But, uh, you know, WEP is more likely on the chopping block at some point. I've heard a lot more complaints about WEP than GPO. And I think the reasoning is there's a lot of people out there that work in fairly low-paid government positions, and I'll, I'll name them, I'll, uh, teachers. Teachers, I would say, as a group, for what they do and the work that they do, and I'm not saying this because I do some teaching. The type of teaching I do is not the high-stress, uh, undervalued teaching. I teach in a, a business college at a, at a high-quality university, paid very well for what I do. That's a whole different gig than teaching third grade, eighth grade, 12th grade, you know, that's a whole nother line of work that is way harder than what I do, honestly. But the effort and expertise it takes to do that well, I think you'd be hard pressed to argue that they are overpaid. <laughs> and so a lot of these people that have those government pensions, they're not particularly large. So when they work part-time jobs to kind of to to embellish that, you know, less than what it should be wage they're getting as teachers. They're going to work in the summers. Um, I see a lot of them, you know, doing, you know, lawn services and tutoring or taking on, you know, any random job they can do in the summer times, that kind of stuff. Well, those jobs are going to participate in Social Security. So they're going to generate a small Social Security benefit. 
to maybe embellish their pretty modest government pension because the reason it's modest is because their their pay was not super high during their teaching career compared to other professions that require equal effort to do than teaching. And um, then they get dinged with this WEP thing and that, that modest or small Social Security that they were getting that they were counting on to kind of help them embellish the teacher's pension that they were going to get. Um, it's just a slap in the face, I think, is how they interpret it. So those those folks have a pretty big lobby and I think are putting a lot of pressure on people and pointing it out and saying, you know, we we would like WEP to go away. We just think this is not accomplishing what they were trying to accomplish uh, with the rule. So that's that's the 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 murmurings that that happen with WEP. I I don't hear the same complaints about GPO probably because it doesn't have the fairness uh, problem that that WEP uh, has in a lot of people's minds. So um, I'm you know I probably would love to see WEP go away because honestly uh, I'm likely to be affected by WEP myself. Because the teaching that I do, in addition to the financial planning work that I do, uh, I, you know, at that job, we don't participate in Social Security. And so I have a non-covered pension uh, personally, which is what sparked my original interest in learning all about WEP and GPO, honestly. And, um, you know, would I like WEP to go away? Yeah, I would, because I probably am not going to get over the hurdle of 30 years of substantial earnings uh, to to shield me from WEP. And, um, you know, so my bias or my, you know, uh, in my self-interest, uh, I'll just say it, WEP would be great to go away for me. Uh, the GPO issue, because I don't see it patently as unfair, just in general and applied to myself, I'm not concerned about GPO being there or not. It's it's not inherently unfair in my eyes. The WEP, though, is just, you know, it's, it's dinging the potential Social Security benefit I might get and lots of other people might get, and I'm in the similar boat the, the, that this uh, the, the author of this email is in. Have a non-covered pension uh, and then also had a lot of years in Social Security, just not enough years in Social Security to create a very large benefit or to shield myself from WEP. So I'm I'm in the same pool we with you, um, and I will still state I think GPO is fair. So um, hopefully those two things were of interest to people. Um, and uh, if you have any questions about anything that I've said, if if there's maybe aspects to WEP and GPO that you you don't think I'm considering that that either confirm in your eyes that it's totally fair or or maybe no, Chris, you're way off base here. Uh, you didn't consider this, that, and the other thing, and and these are the reasons why this situation is patently unfair. Um, I, you know, let me know. Let me know. Just uh, shoot us an email. You can you can shoot Jim an email or me an email. Jim at jimhelps dot com or Chris at jimhelps dot com, and uh, I'd love to uh, love to read your your thoughts on that. If uh, if you have any strong feelings on this. And if you have any questions on suspending benefits or withdrawing your application, we're always happy to tackle those as well. So I think I've said plenty for today. You're probably sick of hearing me and uh, my voice and, and uh, uh, drawing on about this. And uh, so I'll sign off here. I'll be back with you next week with a new show. We've got a Q&A show coming up. Uh, in a few days that Jim and I have already recorded, so you'll hear us both then. And then I think Jim will be available next week for for next week's EDU show, and we'll see where that uh, 
takes us. So thanks a lot for listening, and I'll talk to you again next week. You have listened to Jim on the radio, read his quotes in the media, and enjoyed his banter on iTunes. But even now you may wonder what sets Jim Salmier and Associates apart from other financial planning companies. The answer is quite simple. Jim's diverse team of professionals specializes in retirement planning. They form a lifelong relationship with you and measure their success not through product sales, but through the security and prosperity you may achieve in your retirement. Jim's entire team shares his unwavering commitment to placing their clients' best interests first while offering their services at fair prices with full disclosures. The professionals at Jim Saulnier & Associates are available to assist you with your retirement planning needs. Visit jimhelps.com to schedule your complimentary coffee and a second opinion meeting. That's jim, H-E-L-P-S, dot com. Or call 970-530-0556. The Retirement and IRA Show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier & Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. 